Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Athletic. Instead of taking up that gym membership that you wouldn't use even if the gyms were open, how's about subscribing to The Athletic for just £4 a month as a New Year's resolution? You'll get unrivaled football coverage with analysis and in-depth features from the very best writers around, exclusive Q&As with Athletic staff and ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts, including this one. Find out more and sign up today at theathletic.com slash totally. Totally Football Show. Today, Chelsea call on Tuchel but barely tickle. Man City are too cool for Baggy's tackles. Or shock at Old Trafford as Sheffield United took all three points. We round out the midweek games. Plus, on this day, call your mum the Ibra v Lukaku battle and one half of the planet's biggest game of the season. It's all coming up in the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello, listener. It's Thursday, the 28th of January, and I'm delighted to say that here with us on The Totally Show, we have Duncan Alexander. Hello, James. Uh, Michael Cox. Hello, James. And also the returning Natalie Jedra. Hola, James. Hola to you too, and indeed to all of you and you, listener. Uh, Duncan, exciting to have you on board. What a game uh, your Wickham gave Spurs on Monday night. Did they? Did they, though? Don't judge a book by its cover. It looks, you know, Wickham took the lead um, and it was still a draw until the, the very late stages, but it wasn't really that sort of game. Um, Wickham only had one more shot after scoring in the 25th minute um, and Tottenham should have been well clear before that, really. Um, well, you say that. This was the FA Cup, of course, uh, fourth round and uh, you were 1-1 with four minutes to go. On your dinner had scored the opener, then Bale had got that equaliser, Gareth Bale. And mm. then with four minutes to go, you're 1-1. And then what happened? Uh, then Spurs scored three goals. Um, they did manage to bring on Hoiberg's son, Harry Kane and, and Dombele, which is not a bad quartet uh, as it goes, which, you know, guess what? Made a massive difference. Um, and yeah, they deserved the win. It wasn't the sort of game we were like, oh, no, we came so close to, to going to extra time. Um, not, I mean, the, the game at Spurs three years ago was, or four years ago was much more along those lines but um, it was still interesting I mean Gareth Bale it's always interesting when you see a player like Gareth Bale do well in a game like that because it's high enough for people to sort of legitimately say oh maybe he's coming back into form yet not quite high enough that you could probably I I doubt he's going to play much of a role against uh, Liverpool uh, tonight Mm. Thursday evening give us a crazy stat about Wickham's last two clashes with Spurs yeah, I mean, Chris Slegg at the BBC worked out that they've only led, um, Spurs only led for about eight minutes in the combined 180 of the two games, but they've scored eight goals and, and won both games. So, quirky. Football, eh? Spurs, uh, as their reward, will have a trip to Goodison to take on Everton in the fifth round. In other cup news, Bournemouth on Tuesday beat Crawley, who'd put Leeds out in the previous round, a 2-1. 
the Cherries' victory there. They'll be away at Burnley in round five. Excitingly, Jack Wilshire scoring Bournemouth's opener in that game. His first goal since August 2019. Wow. By the way, some quick quiz news. The Athletic, with the help of Prostate Cancer UK, are going to be putting on 31 club football quizzes across February and March to find out who their most knowledgeable subscriber is. If you're not a subscriber yet, by the way, sign up now and find out more about this at theathletic.com slash PCUK. There's going to be a quiz for every team the Athletic covers, plus one each for the Bundesliga, Serie A and La Liga. Uh, each will be hosted by the relevant correspondent and the winners of each quiz go through to a grand final at the end of March where there's £1,000 up for grabs. Woohoo! All right. Uh, Duncan, Michael, Natalie and you, listener, we're going to be dropping in some quiz questions throughout this podcast just to get you all warmed up. So stay on your toes. Oh, here's one. West Ham play Liverpool this weekend. Stephen Gerrard famously scored two the Liverpool's goals in the 2006 FA Cup against the Hammers. Who got the other one? Cissé. Oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> I don't think I'm even going to try to compete with Michael, honestly. Well, we'll see, Natalie. Early days, early days. Anyway, uh, the midweek Premier League action. You probably all saw the scores. Massive win for the Baggies. Sorry, sorry. Massive win for Man City <laughs> against the Baggies. 5-0. That's their 11th straight victory, Man City. West Ham continued their perfect start to the year with a 3-2 win at Palace. Leeds had a nervy 2-1 win at Newcastle. While Arsenal came from behind to take a 3-1 win at Saints. On Wednesday, Thomas Tuchel's debut for Chelsea produced some lovely passing stats, but no goals against Wolves. It was 0-0 for Brighton and Fulham 2. 1-1 between Everton and Leicester. Burnley beat Villa 3-2. That's their third straight win, the Clarets. And in the first v last clash at Old Trafford, Sheffield United, bottom of the table, Sheffield United, winless until this January, Sheffield United, beat Manchester United 2-1. Crikey. All right, then. Duncan, you made this your viewing choice on Wednesday evening. Well, I also a couple of weeks ago said that I thought that Sheffield United could still stay up and I was roundly mocked. But yeah. um, who's laughing now? Brackets, no one yet, but le- there's less laughter than there was. So they are still 10 points from safety with 18 games to play, which doesn't sound impossible, but I think they still need to make up 26 from the remaining 18 to reach the minimum points total that a team has ever survived with. But you're, you're sticking by this, Yes. It's still a massive long shot, but it is possible, yeah. I mean, they're in no way one of the worst three teams in the Premier League, I would say. Um, well, so in one way, they definitely are. In quite well, a crucial way, they are. Well, no, because you can only judge it at the end of the season. It's a marathon, not a sprint, official. So they've now picked up four wins in five in all competitions, but this is only their second victory in the league. It's the first time they've beaten United since the opening day of the first ever Premier League season, way back in 1992. And uh, Ituralde says, uh, where does this rank amongst the all-time upsets in Premier League history? Well, it's actually not that amazing. United uh, lost against the bottom team in the Premier League back in 2018, only a couple of years ago under Jose Mourinho when it was uh, West Brom who got a, a victory. But they weren't leading the league. And and this this time it was like a 35-point gap between the, the two of them. So I think it was different circumstances. To, to answer that question as well, the, there's a forgotten kind of United losing to the bottom team in February 2011. Um, and everyone forgets United was still unbeaten going into that, that game. Um, they lost to Wolves. Um, and it was that the same day that Arsenal 
threw away a four-goal lead and drew 4-4 four, four at Newcastle. It's, it's arguably the greatest day in Premier League history, that 5th of February 2011. So there we go. But Natalie, fair point. This ranks among the biggest upsets then. Yes, it does definitely because the, the, the difference between them, it's, it's just on the table, it's outstanding. And uh, before we talk about Man United, uh, regarding still Sheffield United, uh, Phil Ganielka, what a great story. Like 38-year-old, he was leading the team. He had a very energetic performance uh, in such an important game against Man United. So, yeah, and you could see glimpses of, of Sheffield United 2019-20 uh, uh, in the in the way that they were defending and imposing uh, their physicality, which for me was a surprise because we, we haven't seen much of that uh, during this campaign. I think uh, Sheffield United's position and, and their points, they they make Sheffield United look much worse than they actually do uh, on on the pitch because their performances are not this tragedy that we see on the table. But yesterday, I think we saw more of that Sheffield United from last season, yeah. So you mentioned physicality there, and certainly that was a complaint from Man United about the opening Blades goal, where on a set piece, and yes, United have conceded a third of all their goals this year from set pieces. But anyway, on the corner coming in, there was a foul on De Gea. Oli Gunnar Solskjaer felt. What do you guys make of it? I thought that was the one instant where they couldn't really feel aggrieved because I'm not sure it was a foul on De Gea. I think they can feel slightly unlucky with the disallowed goal at the other end because I don't think that was a foul on Ramsdale when Martial put the ball in. I think they were unlucky in, in a couple of ways. I mean, the, the winning goal I know was bad defending, um, but it was also quite a lucky deflection that hit the bar and went in. I think we tend to kind of read a lot into results. But I don't think Manchester United are anywhere near as good as their recent good run of form would suggest. And I didn't think this was a disastrous performance. I think had this ended in a draw, you would have said fair enough. Had Manchester United kind of pinched the win, it would have been in keeping with their performance from previous games. So it was a funny one. But I'm pleased for, uh, for Sheffield United because, as Natalie says, when you watch them for 90 minutes, they're nowhere near as bad as, well, they're on five points from 19 going into this game, which is just, yeah, it is ridiculous. Um, and Duncan's right, in many ways, they're not one of the worst three teams in the Premier League. So it's good to see them get a moment. I was trying to think the last time I'd seen a goal at Old Trafford that looked like Sheffield United's second. And I, and I thought it was probably in Soccer Aid. It did look like a kind of, you know, towards the end of a game, and everyone's a bit tired and can't really get it out of the box. And then someone sort of lashes it in. But um, it does make you realise how impressive Derby's 11 points is. Because it feels now, whatever happens, Sheffield United are, are going to surpass that. Um, and to you know to get 11 across 38 games is just extraordinary. Right, OK. So they're on eight, just past the halfway point. But beginning to show signs, as Natalie says, of last season's form. Why is that, do you think? Why are we now beginning to see the blades getting a bit sharper? They've got the biggest um, underperformance on XG this season. They're nine goals. They've scored nine goals fewer than you'd expect. So, and everyone knows they've struggled to find a consistent goal scorer. And that, um, you know maybe that's gonna, that's easing off a bit now. You know they're kind of the luck will change a little bit in the second half of the season. Like they, as we've said seemingly numerous times already today, that they are not as bad as as the league table would have them, and, and they're not as bad in in many metrics as well. So, yeah, I, yeah, there is going to be a struggle, but I can see them at least you know overtaking West Brom pretty soon. Anyway, I think what's notable about them as well is that they really haven't changed their plan at all. You know, I don't think I've ever seen a team suffering so much in the league that hasn't tried to do something completely different. They've they've stuck to their plan A, maybe in terms of points that hasn't worked particularly well. But I think when you see that second goal yesterday, 
And obviously the main thing you look at it is terrible defending from Manchester United. But that is really what Sheffield United have attempted to do over the last two or three years. They work the ball into those corners. They always seem to have a man over. They work a, a four against three or something like that. People talk about the overlapping centre-back, but it's not like really a counter-attacking tactic. It's because they want to be patient when they get the ball into those situations and work a good cutback situation. I think if you look at the, the kind of freeze frame for that goal, as the ball goes in, they've got about seven players within 20 yards of the goal. And, and that is difficult to defend against, albeit Manchester United made it look even more difficult than it probably was. Their attempts to reach uh, safety next see them up against Man City. What do you think about that, Duncan? Bold predictions from you on, on, on the clash with City? Um, I feel this might be a tougher assignment, um, particularly uh, as it stands. I mean, obviously, as we've discussed, they benefited from some slightly lax defending, um, and that's definitely not, not anything we've seen from City for what feels like two or three months now. So, How, how will City deal with their physicality? I should mention that Sheffield United haven't actually scored a Premier League goal against Manchester City since Young at Heart by the Bluebells was number one, which, of course, was April 1993. That's a long time. Would you know who was in the uh, Sheffield United team the last time they won away at City in a league game? Um, Chris, Chris Wilder. Oh. you got Chris, right? Yeah, no, Chris mm. Wilder himself. So um, Really? Yeah. he's t- Chris Wilder is younger than that Japanese player that's still playing in... Kazumura. <laughs> yeah, so... I mean, it's a it's maverick, and I'm not sure it fits in with the Premier League squad rules. But Wilder should maybe give himself a run out against City and rest some players for the for the next game. It's an idea. We'll talk about Man City later on. They are, of course, fresh from their 11th straight victory. What about Man United, though? Uh, anything that uh, is this one of those little blips that can happen uh, to a team who are otherwise riding high in the league, uh, or was there something else? Was it a case of the fact that they'd played twice? against their biggest rivals, probably Liverpool, and they switched off a little here, maybe? I mean, when the first goal went in, they didn't actually seem that bothered. They always go behind anyway. Yeah, we, we can discuss VAR and we can disagree with the decisions, uh, especially with uh, Man United's uh, goal and Sheffield United's first goal. But regardless of VAR, United just didn't do enough on, on first half, especially to lead to lead the match. And I know we have discussed United's mentality so many times and they have showed that they can fight back. But sometimes things just still get flat. You know, it, 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 it's becoming more rare. But I think it was the case yesterday because uh, sometimes you, you look at the pitch and you don't see the desire that you expect from Man United. Again, I think it is becoming more and more rare. But uh, yesterday, Sheffield United's second goal, as, as, as much as it is hard to defend, uh, and I agree with that, the body language didn't go uh, United's way. You look at the goal and it's, it's, it was just poor. Everybody was poor. Well... Will their attitude improve this weekend when they travel to Arsenal, I wonder? Before we move on, should we get your thoughts on that? Arsenal coming off a, an impressive come-from-behind 3-1 win at St Mary's. What, what was the difference between this game and the one they had at the weekend in the Cup? Uh, a big difference would be the, the players that were on show. I mean, I was surprised that Arteta rotated so much for that FA Cup game, considering 
I think that should have been a, a competition Arsenal could have prioritised. They've got a great recent record in it. Um, but they're very good, Arsenal. I, I thought they were excellent. I mean, we talk about Southampton's pressing a lot of the time, but it was Arsenal's pressing, really, that was the, the main theme, particularly in the first 20 minutes. I thought they did that really well, particularly when Southampton were dropping a man into the defence to build up play. And then when they lost the ball, they weren't in a good defensive shape to actually defend the attacks. But yeah, Arsenal look better overall. And I think sometimes when it's the fringe players that are, looking good you know you're onto something good and you've got a decent side I thought um Cedric Suarez had a really good game here at left back the last time Kieran Tierney was out I think it was that 0-0 against Palace at home and, and everyone said Arsenal need a, a left-footed option from the left and certainly helps especially the way Tierney's been playing but Suarez I mean I don't know whether it was because he was back at his old club or something but I thought he was absolutely excellent and um and Partey's return as well I mean I think when Arsenal signed him they really were making a, a decision that they were going to almost base the side around him. I think he's he's good enough to to kind of fall into that category, almost the, the way Bruno Fernandes has done for Manchester United. I know he's a different player, but he's that kind of all-action midfielder who can do a bit of everything. Um, and I think his his return has really uh, made Xhaka look better alongside him. is a frustrating player, but I think with the right role and with the right partner, he can look good. And obviously Saka, again, we have to mention, he's just, I mean, he can play almost any position. He's so two-footed. He's really good tactically his decision making is great um so yeah I think the game of the weekend should be really interesting because I mean before Sheffield United the last time that Manchester United lost in the league was that game at home to Arsenal Mm. um when I thought that was maybe Arsenal's most impressive tactical performance of the season um so yeah I'm really looking forward to that game yeah, that was 1-0 back in November at Old Trafford with Pierre-Emery Aubameyang scoring the winner. He's been out for the last couple of games and some doubt about whether he's going to be available for this one. We might see Martin Odegaard, of course, who just arrived on loan from Real Madrid. The Palace draw 0-0, the only time in the last six games that Arsenal have actually dropped points in the league. Chelsea, Brighton, Baggies, Newcastle are now Saints, the victories in there. What do you think, Duncan and Natalie? Are Arsenal going to continue their recent form? Yeah, I think it's becoming very interesting to watch Arsenal because, and then we have to talk about uh, Mikel Arteta. You can see that he's getting his ways in, in some aspects of the team. Uh, after the match, after the Southampton match, Saka uh, gave an interview and said that uh, Arteta makes everything clear for him. So he knows what to do on the pitch at the same time that Arteta gives him freedom to, to play his game. So, you have the feeling that players are are finding themselves more on the pitch. And if you see that that brilliant pass from from Cedric Suarez to Saka on Lacazette's goal, that's that's exactly it. Uh, I remembered um once I was speaking to uh, a Man City player a couple of seasons ago and they were talking about the importance of of finding themselves on the pitch that they trained with GPSs because well most most teams do that but how important is this for players to know uh, the other players' movements and and to know what they were about to to do and to think? So I think we're starting to see that from Arsenal. And how important was it for Arteta to make these changes? The players that came in and gained more space, like uh, Smith Rowe, Saka, they they really seem to embrace the idea. Uh, it's a, a bit like when Mikel arrived. So really starting to shape a squad that looks like him. It, it's a long process, but uh, I, I see it happening more now. 
What I think is interesting as well is if you go back a couple of months, there was a lot of criticism of Guardiola and also Arteta as a kind of student of Guardiola. And, you know, that it was almost kind of people saying that their methods had been superseded. If you look now, obviously City, the most consistent team in the league, they've got the best defence. Um, the next best defence is Spurs. Obviously, Mourinho will always usually have a good defence. And then it's Arsenal after that. So, you know, Arsenal and City have got this kind of basis that they're both building consistency on. And, you know, Arsenal are now level on points with Chelsea, who were title contenders in commas a few months ago. Um, and they're only five points behind West Ham, who are in, in fourth place. So, you know, Champions League qualification is is kind of looming now for Arsenal and that would be huge you know they've been out of the competition for so long and it really has affected you know who they can buy their finances and you know Michael said about it's surprising that he rotated so much in the FA Cup and it is a shame for for them they got knocked out but I think you know they really have got a chance to concentrate on the league here and, and finish higher than they have for for quite a few seasons. Duncan Bold calls Alexander which do you think is more likely them getting into the top four or Sheffield United staying up? Probably Arsenal getting into the top four. It pains but it's me close, to say, isn't it? it? Yeah, it is think close, about yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's get on to the rest of the midweek action, including Chelsea and Man City and all the rest of them after this. Now, sir, remember a tattoo is permanent, so tell me one more time what you want. Uh, well, I want Bruno Fernandes knocking a live bird off its perch with a free kick, with Ollie as a kind of, like, god in the sky. Oh, and Champions 2021 on top as well. I can't see anything going wrong there, Man United fan. But if things don't go exactly as expected, Paddy Power's Acker Insurance gets you a free bet if one leg of your 4-plus fold Acker lets you down. Paddy Power! Max free bet £10, min odds 1 to 5 on each leg. Online exclusive, excludes shop bets, excludes enhanced match odds. T's and C's apply, 18plus, begamalaware.org. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Quick check on the table. City are now top, of course, a point clear of Neighbours Man United, two points ahead of third place Leicester. West Ham are fourth. That's ahead of Spurs' clash with Liverpool Thursday evening. Spurs currently sixth and Liverpool fifth. At the other end, Burnley are now nine points clear of trouble, while last place Sheffield United, as mentioned, are a mere ten points from safety. Thomas Tuchel is the new Chelsea manager. That's right. Tuesday at Sanford Bridge, we got our first look at him uh, dressed in a blue tracksuit on the Stamford Bridge sidelines has his lateral thinking side set new passing records but failed to trouble trouble rather a visitor's wolves net tactically this is a bit kind of the DMZ you know kind of like a, a no man's land between the old style Frank football and the new Tuchel ball but anything we should take from the extraordinary number of completed passes a record number of completed passes in fact in this game yeah I mean, it it reminded me of the Jurgen Klopp's first game when Liverpool went to White Hart Lane and everyone kind of was so obsessed with seeing differences and, and Liverpool did run further in that match and suddenly everyone was like, it's gagging pressing, it's heavy metal football. But, you know, as you said, it, it it's such a short time since they changed managers. I think the first 15, 20 minutes of the game, you could see a real difference. I mean, Chelsea seems to be playing a lot more one-touch football than they have recently. Um, and that kind of and they looked pretty dangerous for the, that first 20 minutes, had a couple of good chances. But then after that, it did kind of, you know, Wolves, to be fair, put in a very good defensive performance and, and it did become a bit sterile. Um, although it did improve towards the end when Pulisic and, and Mason Mount came on, mm. um, who I think, you know, that was the big news before the game was that Mason Mount had been dropped um, 
And, uh, you know, obviously Tuchel came out and said, I think the supporters would have liked what they saw. 16 recoveries in the last third is proof of energy on the pitch. But you do wonder whether he's ever studied Chelsea supporters and what they what they demand. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's too early to tell. But they, they could have easily won that game. And then everyone would have said, oh, look, Tuchel's come in and, and made an instant impact. Hmm. What, what do you expect from him then? Going forward, Michael and Natalie, and how do you think, what's the first thing he needs to do and how do you think he's going to try and manage that? Well, first, I, I think we have to try not to read too much into yesterday's match and especially with the selections because uh, Tuchel himself, uh, before the match, he said that uh, uh, today he had chosen a bit more experienced uh, side and uh, it was the most unfair lineup. Because he had just one training session, so it's. I don't think it's necessarily uh, a big deal that he dropped Mason Mount and he dropped May, uh, Reese James. I think we have to wait, and maybe Mason Mount will be back uh, next match. And I, I think a few things that we can expect from him is that I think we have to let go of the idea that he's going to have that Chelsea is going to have a starting eleven uh, because that's just not his his way of working and he he offers uh different solutions so so he went to a back three uh which we haven't seen uh at Chelsea for a while now uh and he changes tactics during the matches and he he gives uh different roles to players so when he arrived at PSG he was the the first thing he did was to give Neymar the the number 10 role for him to to play in a different way he put Marquinhos as a defensive midfielder so I expect him to do a few things like that with Chelsea players yesterday Hudson Odoi uh playing on the right he was brilliant he was really good uh Chelsea had almost 79% possession 13 shots and, and five on target uh as Duncan mentioned uh, they they looked more uh confident and and a little bit more intense at first but we still saw that bit of lack of confidence that Chelsea has been showing and it it's not going to disappear overnight you know so I'm excited to see uh, Tuchel working at Chelsea. He said after the match, uh, if this was the starting point, I'm looking forward to where we can get to. And uh, yeah, I'm with him. Yes, yeah. so I'm, I'm looking forward. Yeah. I think it was a tough first game for him, actually, um, because Wolves are just so, so negative, really, without the ball. They sit so deep and, and defend so solidly that there was no real space in behind. Um, and indeed, to be fair, Chelsea didn't really have many players going in behind without Werner, without Pulisic. And actually, if you look at the, the run of fixtures that the Tuchel's got, um, it's Wolves, Burnley, Tottenham, Sheffield United and Newcastle. They must be five of the teams that sit the most deep in the Premier League. So I think we're going to see quite a lot of this. We're going to see a lot of possession, maybe not much penetration. Um, but yeah, as Natalie says, with one day on the training ground, I'm not sure we can really judge too much from what he did. Maybe with the exception of hudson Adoy, who I don't think has ever played wing-back before, but I thought was probably Chelsea's brightest player down the right. Um, and actually did quite well when he went to the left late on. So that was interesting. But aside from that, it was, um, I just thought, a really flat game, really. OK. Tuchel won six trophies in two and a half years at Paris Saint-Germain, plus the Pokal at Dortmund. And he took Paris Saint-Germain to the first ever Champions League final. Which current manager, here's a quiz question, in a major European league, started his coaching career by doing scouting for Thomas Tuchel? Nagelsmann, wasn't it? Oh, goodness sake. There he is. 2-0 from Michael Cox. More questions to come. Chelsea facing Burnley uh, this weekend. Burnley, for all their sitting deepness, 3-2 winners 
Wednesday in a thriller with Villa. Quite a finale here. Villa were 2-1 up with quarter of an hour to go before Burnley came storming back. They've now scored three goals in two games in a row after that 3-0 at Fulham in the Cup. Wow. And a week ago, they won at Anfield. So that's three wins in seven days. Crikey. They did it in a very Burnley way. Their XG for the game was 0.48 and they scored three goals. The only other team to, to get through or more goals with less than 0.5 this season was um, Leeds on the opening day against Liverpool. So, mm. you know, Sean Dyche extracting gold from rocks. With a, with a team built for a bag of chips, as he explained after the game. Beyond the bag of chips, who do you want to give credit to? Uh, Nick Pope? Yeah, well, Villa dominated first half, but uh, Burnley, they, they were very dangerous with their crosses. And I, I think it's just remarkable how season after season, with all the limitations that we know Burnley has, uh, Sean Dyche is able to keep the fighting spirit of this team. And, and they, they get results like that. So that's what impresses me about Burnley, just season after season. Hmm. Do you fancy their chances at Stamford Bridge this weekend? I think they're going to put a, a fight against Chelsea, but the, the Tuchel uh, factor of things, I think it will, it will prevail. Hmm. Michael, what do you think? I think they could frustrate Chelsea for long periods. Um, I thought the interesting thing about this game was Dwight McNeil got a goal and an assist, and he hasn't got either of them since September. Um, when you consider how good he was last season, he carried so much of their attacking threat. If he's coming back into form, then I think that's a big boost for them. And yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they got something against Chelsea, actually. Just because I think I think as a danger, Chelsea would do what they did um, yesterday, just hold possession without really having any means to break down the opposition. Um, again, I think that could be quite an interesting game. Also on Wednesday in the Premier League, there were draws for Everton and Leicester and Brighton and Fulham. Natalie, you spent your evening watching the, the game at Goodison uh, as Everton and Leicester finished 1-1. Did you regret your choice given what was happening at Old Trafford? Well, I, I confess that on second half, I paid more attention to ah. Man United's match. <laughs> I was trying to keep up with, with both of them. Well, Leicester had 18 shots, uh, but Everton defended really deep. And I think there's something about Everton that uh, that is interesting. And if they can keep up with that, it, it'd be ideal because they can be very clever under Ancelotti. They they can read the game well. Like they're not ashamed to to sit back at first, found their spaces, and and then they scored. And but Leicester was completely dominating second half uh, when they scored with Tillmans. And we have to talk about Pickford again because a goalkeeper like him. Mm. National team, everything. He needs to show more consistency in terms of not making poor mistakes like this. You know, I think it's it's already about time. But I wanted to talk about Hummes actually because okay. he hasn't scored in the Premier League since October, and uh, I think this is what we can expect from Hummes. I never expected a consistent season from him because he hasn't he hadn't delivered a consistent season for a while now. Maybe. Uh, ever since he played for Porto. But we see these glimpses of brilliantism and just pure talent. Uh, what a finish from him. And not only the goal, but the way that he moves and creates spaces. It's a bit like we saw uh, first uh, in the beginning of the season. 
And I think if we adjust our expectations to to Hummes, not expecting that he will deliver week after week, match after match, because he has a history with injuries and everything, but he has a lot, still he has a lot to offer to Leicester. And it's very enjoyable to see Hummes play when he's one, in one of his nights, you know. He was injured, but now he's cured. He's cured Hammers. Uh, Gareth Southgate was, I think, there, was he not, to see this game? I'm just wondering, and not that there's many reasons why the rest of the world might look upon uh, England at the moment and titter, but is Pickford being our keeper? Is that just, something that the rest I, of the world... I have world... a theory that Gareth Southgate is everywhere. Just okay, saw, right. see a match and he's, he's there, yeah. So right. pretty sure he was there. But is that something that other nations talk about behind our back, Natalie, the fact that Pickford's our keeper? Um, I think... Actually, I think most people still have this image of Pickford uh, from the World Cup. Uh, so so it's not as strong as, uh, as it is here uh, because we, we are always discussing Nick Pope and how well he's doing and how he should be maybe the first choice of goalkeeper for, for the national team. But yeah, I think, think that's it. It's the Pierre-Luigi Colina theory, isn't it, where if you watched him every week, you'd see him make as many mistakes as any other referee. But when you just saw him occasionally, everyone in England was like, he's the best ref I've ever seen. But um, just on Hammers, that was his 19th goal from outside the box in the top five European leagues. But the first one with his right foot. So collector's item. Very nice. Leicester, who've only had one defeat in the last 13 games in all competitions, are only two points off the top. They look like sticking around for the long run, those two. Brighton and Fulham, who are both uh, in a battle to stick around in, in the top flight with the goalless draw. Brighton's still the only team in England yet to win a home match this season. No Premier League side has ever gone through a full campaign without securing a victory at home. Not even Derby. Crystal Palace nearly did, but then mm. they didn't. All right. Well, we'll get on to uh, Tuesday's action, Man City and... That big Ibrahimovic-Lukaku showdown next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Four fixtures in the Premier League on Tuesday, but one of the biggest stories came a thousand miles to the south in Milan, as Ibrahimovic and Lukaku went together in a real old head-to-head in the Coppa Italia quarter-final clash between Inter and Milan. Zlatan had put Milan 1-0 up when he and former Man United teammate Lukaku got involved in a massive half-time scrap. And thanks to the empty stadium, it proved a highly entertaining and pretty audible bit of telly. Ibra grinning menacingly, saying, Go do your voodoo sh**, you little donkey, and go call your mother. And I rate Lukaku having to be held back. you and your wife. And, apparently, I'll shoot you in the head. Crikey. Joining us now on the line, James Horncastle. James, who started it? <laughs> I, I mean, that's a difficult question to answer, James, because I wasn't on the pitch. and I was mm. only able to 
to see what we were shown by the match director. Um, the assumption, I suppose, is that Zlatan started it um, with, uh, with the kind of trash talking that we saw last weekend in the defeat to Atalanta, where even at 3-0 down, he was telling Duban Zapata that uh, he'd scored more goals than Duban Zapata had played games in his professional career. And Zlatan, I suppose, tried to rile up uh, Lukaku uh, in you know what is one of the biggest games, if not the biggest game on the fixture list for both of these clubs, and it got very ugly. Yeah, well, it, it, we've not seen Lukaku lose his rag in, in quite that fashion. So Zlatan certainly succeeded. As it turned out, it was Lukaku who in this match had the last laugh because they both got a yellow card. Ibra then gets a fairly soft second yellow and gets sent off. They were 1-0 up at this point, Milan, but then Lukaku converts a penalty to make it 1-1. And 10-man Milan hold on to the 97th minute until what happens next? Eriksen con il destro ed è lui che la mette in porta e questo è un derby che si ricorderà. Well, the most unexpected uh, match winner, I suppose, because albeit it's only a year since Christian Eriksen signed for Inter and was uh, unveiled at uh, La Scala, the opera house in, in Milan, as this new virtuoso. Um, he finally scored for the first time in, what, six months? First time this season. Um, and it was it was the kind of free kick that I thought um, a lot of people yeah, believed he would be kind of curling in uh, when he joined 12 months ago. So could very well be his last kick um, as an Inter player. But I think, you know, given how much... He makes how much Inter want for him. It's going to be pretty difficult as well for him to uh, find a new club uh, between now and the end of the transfer window. But what a moment. Yeah, what, a, what pressure as well. Because 97th minute, as I say, it was 1-1 heading to extra time. And he, the player who never gets any minutes under Antonio Conte, with the free kick, with the chance to, to settle it. And boy, did well, he deliver. This is the thing with him is that you say he doesn't get any minutes. I mean, it felt classic Conte because Conte's been sort of accused of humiliating Ericsson, uh, even though that's something he denies, by basically putting him on in the 89th minute um, in games. And he more or less did that this time, except there was 10 minutes of, extra, uh, of, of added time. So <laughs> he ended up getting 12 or 15 minutes, um, uh, whereas, uh, you know, he has considerably less time usually to, to impress. But uh, yeah, I, I think as well, you saw one of Milan's January signings, uh, Mete, he was the guy who, fat, who, who, who gave away the foul right on the edge of the area. Certainly hasn't had a, a very good start to his uh, Milan career. He was subbed at halftime against Atalanta. Um, but uh, yeah, into going through to the semi-finals where they will play a less intense game, um, a game with less poison, less rivalry um, against Juventus, James. Woof! Two-legged affair, which begins <laughs> next week. Of course, Inter schooled Andrea Pirlo's Juve uh, just, uh, when was that? A couple of weeks ago in, in the league. Yep. Excellent stuff. In the other semi-final, it'll be Atalanta against Napoli or Spezia because they play this Thursday evening. James, thank you so much uh, for that. Pleasure. And look forward to speaking to you next Tuesday in our Euro Roundup. The Gazetta this week explaining that how the beef between them goes way, way back. Of course, when Lukaku scored in a derby, he declared Milan has a, a new king in reference to Ibrahimovic. And Ibra replied, we never had a king here. It's always been a god. But even before that, when they were teammates briefly at Man United, Ibra uh, reveals that he actually bet Lukaku 
uh, 50 quid that he couldn't trap a football. He said, I will give you £50 sterling every time you manage to trap a ball. Lukaku never took him up on the offer. Wow. Aklaf Hanif says, after the Lukaku-Ibrahimovic face-off, what is the panel's most memorable on-field bust-up? Sorry to spring that on you. Anyone spring to mind? Mm, Dion Dublin once headbutted Robbie Savage, and a lot of football headbutts are very sort of just, you know, pressing your head against someone. This was a proper... Right. Yeah, that was quite good. Of course, there's the Blackburn in Moscow uh, moment, and of course, Newcastle as well. But Natalie, no doubt there have been some crackers in Brazil. Edgemundo, perhaps. <laughs> Edgemundo would be a good guess. Yes, we, we've had quite a few, probably in Libertadores. Uh, but there's the Orconcour, uh, Zidane, Materazzi, World Cup final. That, mm. yeah. Indeed. Nobody likes to see it. And let's hope that uh, karma heads prevail going forward. Back to the Premier League. Tuesday, saw Arsenal with that come-from-behind win at Saints. Man City with a 5-0 win over West Brom. West Ham poking their noses into the top four with a 3-2 win at Palace. What a week for West Ham, eh? Frank Lampard gets sacked and they break into the Champions League places. What, what, what's the story behind uh, the Hammers? Because of all the things we were pretty certain of back in August, it's that things were going to go spectacularly wrong there at London Stadium with David Moyes brought back in after not really thrilling them the first time around. Key players like Grady Diangana sold off. It was it was all going to go wrong. Instead, it's all gone right. Why and how? Uh, I think West Ham, they, they have been making it hard for teams on the top of the table for a while. And that's why they're fourth, because they, they, they made it very hard for Liverpool on the reverse fixture, because they're, they're playing again uh, this weekend. And more recently, they, they lost to United, they lost to Chelsea, but they, they compensated by... They didn't drop points on matches that they couldn't drop points, like... Crystal Palace, uh, West uh, West Brom, Burnley, they got a win against Everton. So so they got these key results. Maybe they will not get uh, three points against Liverpool, but they, they are consistent in, in this uh, in this sense. And I, I enjoyed David Moyes' interview after the, the midweek fixture where the reporter said, oh, so you guys are fourth in the league? And he said, could you repeat that? Yes, we, you guys are fourth in the league. And he was like, yes, thank you. We're not saying that uh, we're going to fight for the Champions League, but it's it's interesting to see uh, what he has been doing for for West Ham. And who would have thought that the the weekend's match against Liverpool would be uh, a battle for top four? It's it's bizarre to think that whoever's in charge of rec- recruitment at, at West Ham is doing a a pretty special job. Five of the starting team that took on uh, Palace on Tuesday. Uh, were all made un- uh, signings made under David Moyes' uh, tenure and all proved massively influential. Uh, so far, perhaps not so much, but Craig Dawson, who scored, and I think most Hammers fans weren't even aware he was with them until the start of this year. Thomas Suchek with two goals. Jared Bowen's been brilliant for them. Saeed Benrama, who's running things in the middle. All, as I say, arriving under David Moyes for a, a very limited amount of money. Is that the reason? It's basically just some very, very astute transfer business. And is there going to be a bit more, do you think, before this week is out. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Suchek and Sufa have done particularly well, but I think more that the, the organisation of the side has been really good. With all due respect to those players, if you put them in another, you know, bottom half Premier League side, I, I'm not sure they'd look quite so good. I've been really impressed with them. Um, and I think the central midfield in particular has been a big upgrade. I said, I think last time I was on this podcast, I watched the game against Burnley and I was really impressed with uh, Suchek and Rice and how they just commanded the centre of the pitch. And they just look a, a lot more 
Can I just say this? A lot more discipline with that Mark Noble, who um, is a bit of a club legend and, and is a very good pass for the ball. But I've always thought without the ball, he's so... He's just never in the right position. <laughs> and I think he, he's always caused his teammates problems because of that. And these two, I think, are, are just much better at that and provide a basis for for the likes of... Uh, ben Rama was good um, in this game against uh, Crystal Palace. I thought Fornals made some really clever little contributions. So yeah, they're just a, a better all-round side than they were a couple of years ago, certainly. 4.30 this Sunday afternoon, Liverpool visit. What, what, what are people going to be repeating to David Moyes after this game, do you think? You're in third, David. I mean, Suchek's got the um, capability of causing Liverpool a lot of problems, particularly with their you know, continuing issues at central defence. Um, you know, his record at, with headed goals is, is really good. And I know it's a bit of a cliche, but he is kind of performing that um, Fellaini role that um, Fellaini did so well for Moyes at Everton and and it, I think um, we've said before that it's it's really good and pleasing that Moyes is, is having this kind of you know late career uh, rehabilitation because this season's kind of perfectly set up for him it is very much a season we haven't seen for sort of 15-20 years in the Premier League where it's kind of a series of mini seasons where you might have injury crises or you might not play for two or three weeks and you know he is a really good manager at kind of being pragmatic and cutting his cloth to just for the next game rather than a kind of empire builder um, and yeah but, you know it reminds me a little bit of 1985-86 when West Ham came third they were the, obviously the, the highest London club that season and uh you know, that's one of the few seasons they've they've ended the a top flight season with a positive goal difference, and it, it'll be good to see him, you know, repeat that. Or does it remind you as well of the kind of mid nought mid to late noughties when Everton under David yeah. Moyes were were finishing top four, and is that an equivalent kind of? Well, yeah, I think it is, and I think Everton um, they got into the Champions League that season with sixty points, I think, which is the lowest ever to finish top four and get in the Champions League, um, and it's probably not going to be quite as low this season, but it is it is going to be lower than normal and it does give teams like Leicester, like West Ham, um, possibly Southampton, although that has tailed off, you know, a chance, an outside chance of, of doing it. And um, yeah, it's it's good for the competitiveness of the league. Mm. Now, meanwhile, on top of the Premier League and looking ominous, our Man City. Richard Keyes is a visionary. who suggested Big Sam could help Man City keep clean sheets and so it proved on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> Sasu Heino says, why are Manchester City winning all the games now? Are they playing better? And if so, what is the reason? Will they break away from the others in February? What do you think, Michael? Um, I think there's a danger of that. Yeah, a danger of them breaking away, which would be quite a shame considering this season's been so exciting because it's been so topsy-turvy. But at the moment, I can't really see Manchester United or anyone else keeping up with them. They do look really, really good. Um, I think particularly in this game it was impressive considering they were without Kevin De Bruyne who I think has completely dominated the side for the last 18 months or so um, the rise of, of Gundogan I think in particular is the obvious factor I mean he's just scoring so many goals but I think on top of that just his, his all round game has been good he's collecting the ball in clever positions he's very neat and tidy passer without being necessarily the, the real expressive assist merchant that De Bruyne is. Um, and they're looking solid at the back as well. I mean, Ruben Diaz has got a lot of credit, but I think just the entire side has, has looked much more solid. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed watching them the last few weeks. I hope they don't run away with it because I would like a, a fun title race, uh, t- title race, I should say. Mm. But, uh, yeah, they were great here. Yeah, Gundogan, 
sorry, possibly everyone else was aware of this, but for me, it's a bit like, you know, in the thriller when the butler rips off his <laughs> dinner jacket and reveals himself as a secret agent. It's this killer instinct that I had no idea was there. It's been a while since we, we haven't seen uh, Gundogan playing so well. I think before his injury, his his long-term injury, uh, the, the knee operation that he had, uh, he was doing really well, and then he got injured. But I think there are a lot of interesting things happening happening in City. Gundogan, of course, is one of them. Uh, you see João Cancelo and the way that he's playing as a midfielder as well. Because when, when Kevin De Bruyne got injured, it was never a matter of who will replace Kevin because nobody can replace him. Nobody can do the things. It was never a one-man job. So everybody's just pitching in. So you have João Cancelo doing different things and exploring uh, different areas of the pitch. You have Gundogan scoring. Uh, you have Bernardo Silva improving. Uh, you have uh, Rodri even. Uh, that I was a bit skeptical about Rodri because I think it, it took a while for him to get to where he is, but he got it and, and he is there and he's been delivering so many good performances and Phil Foden of course uh, this week I, I spoke to Ederson and uh, we were talking about Ruben Diaz of course and he yeah, they played together in Benfica uh, Ruben Diaz is is younger but he he used to play with the professionals as well and, and Ederson said that uh, Ruben Diaz always had a strong leadership that he was just an 18 year old and he went up and spoke to the captain and he just showed a lot of personality on the pitch and that explains a little bit why he settled in so well and, and even Ederson uh, he was saying that uh, he's more dedicated to his physical part because he 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 lost weight he changed his diet he changed his uh training uh he lost um fat percentage so he's feeling better in terms of 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 his physical and so there are a lot of things happening to city and we can see it on the table mm. cancelo is scoring a goal in this one how how did you feel about that cancelo goal of course, the, the West Brom players, several of them had stopped because Sean Massey had put the, the, the flag up over on the, on, the, on the sideline. I thought it was just really unfortunate. And I don't actually necessarily think she was wrong to raise the flag. I mean, it seems she was wrong with the offside. But the job is to raise your flag when there's an offside, unless there's really a direct situation where a goal is going to be scored. And I think she waited to the point where Bernardo Silva had the ball almost next to the corner flag, was being faced up by a defender. I don't think you can say there's a reasonable chance of a goal coming from that situation. And she was a little bit unlucky, really, that obviously Cancelo smacked it in the top corner from 25 yards. The other point, and this is a slight tangent, but I do think it's relevant, is I was recently at a WSL game at Kingsmeadow where uh, Massey Ellis was the linesman there. And there were a couple of situations where she really let the play run on a lot and then flagged. And this is a, a, a game or a league where there's no VAR. So it was almost like she was accustomed to the VAR system and then found it difficult when she was going to non-VAR system. And I think, I'm not quite sure how many linesmen are doing that, but it must be quite difficult to switch between right. actually, because it's the fundamental part of your job, which is completely changing. So I just felt a bit sorry for her really. I thought she got a bit unlucky with that. Mm, and West Brom as well, although, you know, given the final score, perhaps it wouldn't have made much difference. Interesting though that the last City game uh, that they had last Wednesday also involved a controversial offside goal. Uh, you remember that's the one with Rodri coming back on Tyrone Mings. Uh, and it, I think now that Pogmol and UEFA have perhaps amended the rule a bit. They said if a similar situation to that one occurs in a future match, 
the impact, as they say, will be penalised for offside, which I think a lot of people wanted in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a big fan of just changing interpretations mid-season because it kind of, I mean, as some United fans pointed out after the discussion of the disallowed goals or not disallowed goals against Sheffield United, mm. that, you know, the, the week before City had benefited from a goal that would no longer count if it had happened this week. So I think if you make changes, do it at the end of the season after after seeing the effect. But it seems a little bit kind of, you know, putting paper mache over a leaking hole as it as it stands wouldn't that that wouldn't work would it once it's set uh, would paper ma- i'm mache? not a paper mache expert we would hold it once it's set yeah we should just point out that on the defensive front for west brom um sam allardyce is now letting in 3.14 goals a game um not the sort of pie that he enjoys usually <laughs> um he's the only manager in premier league history to uh in within a season to concede over three goals a game so you know the the shoring up of of West Brom has has not happened yet, and obviously he kept the team locked in the dressing room for an hour um, mm. after the game. Yeah, twenty two goals conceded in seven games under Big Sam. In the seven games that the the last seven games under Slaven Bilic, only twelve different matches, etc. But certainly not had the desired effect just yet. Also on Tuesday, Leeds got back to winning ways and goal-scoring ways with a 2-1 win away at Newcastle, who have now had six defeats out of six in all competitions in 2021, which is their worst run in almost six years, which has a nice symmetry to it. Next up, let's have a bit more of a look at the weekend. We're sponsored for this episode of The Totally Football Show by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, which is up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to The Totally Football Show, you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com totally, all in lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash totally to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash totally. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. 28th of January, listener. And on this day in 1961, something remarkable happened. Dennis Law scored six goals in one FA Cup fourth-round match against Luton, but still didn't win. It's true. Law scored all six of City's goals as they led 6-2 at Cannibals Road after 69 minutes, but the game was then abandoned due to a waterlogged pitch. In the rear-aim fixture, four days later, Luton were victorious. And so City went out and Law's goals were expunged from the record books. That doesn't seem fair in any way. Seems absolutely fair. It's a game that doesn't count. To me, it feels really unfair that you should be 6-2 up with 20 minutes to go and then you have to start from scratch and the other lot win the game. Well, 
I mean, there's two schools of thought. There's the the English school, which is you just scrap it and replay the game, or there's the continental way, which is you just pick up the game from where it stopped. There was a Real Madrid game in the Galacticos era where they actually, I think it was it away at Sociedad or, or Deportivo maybe, and they basically had five minutes left to play, but you were allowed to change the team. They needed a goal, so they basically came out with like seven up front, <laughs> scored the goal, and then made a series of defensive substitutions and hung on. See, for me, that seems more ridiculous than just replaying the whole game. But That must have been a hell of a five minutes. There was some great... Um... Like La Liga fixture nonsense around that time because I think it was around that period where Barcelona were told they had to play a game on a Tuesday rather than a Monday or something and wanted to play on a Monday so had it kick off at like two minutes past midnight which was just <laughs> incredible and yet also not that late by Spanish standards which I quite liked yeah yeah oh the Spanish now uh, ooh quiz question <laughs> quiz question Dennis Law had a brief spell playing in Italy for which club Torino. Hey, Duncan's on the board. How are you doing, listener? Really? Excellent. Uh, now, on to this weekend's games. Uh, here's the fixtures. Saturday lunchtime is Everton-Newcastle. Then you've got three games at three o'clock. You have to choose between Palace Wolves, Man City-Sheffield United and West Brom-Fulham. Which way are you leaning on that one, Natalie? Uh, I think Man City-Sheffield United. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, I've been enjoying watching City, so... Yeah, fair. Uh, Arsenal against Man United is your tea time entertainment with Saints Villa from 8 o'clock on Sunday Chelsea take on Burnley then it's Leicester Leeds West Ham hosts their top four rivals Liverpool at 4.30 before Brighton Spurs concludes the weekend's fun now we've, we've mentioned West Ham Liverpool and of course we're yet to see what Liverpool do Thursday night against Spurs and we've also talked about Arsenal's clash with Man United what else are you looking forward to this weekend Michael I'm looking forward to a game that I'm not best placed to speak about, which is okay. the Copa Libertadores final. Right. We'll be talking about that a little bit later on. And we know somebody who is well placed to, to talk about that, don't we, Natalie? Yes, I am very look, much looking forward to this match as well. Before that, that's coming up Saturday evening and it's on BBC's uh, Red Button iPlayer thing. So, yeah, that, that'll, that'll be nice from the Maracanã. Uh, Duncan, what are you looking forward to, apart from the ones we've already talked about? Anything else? I think Leicester Leeds is interesting because um, they're two teams that have been very reliant on on their centre forwards. Um, you know, Jamie Vardy and Bamford. Bamford's form has really tailed off, um, and he's just not getting the the high xG chances that he was earlier in the season. And, and unlike in the Championship, he was he was knocking them in. So um, you know, Leeds are having to kind of work out a way of of scoring without him. Obviously, Rafinha's stepped up. Um, Leicester, as we mentioned earlier, they, they were very dominant at Everton. They had a lot of possession, um, but they haven't really found a way of... It almost felt, watching the highlights of that game, if if Leicester had Calvert-Lewin, they would be a genuine kind of title contenders, I think. Um, well, they've got Jamie Vardy, of course, but they, they just don't have him at the moment. Well, yeah, but even, even when he's fit, he hasn't been scoring other than penalties that much, uh, mm. and particularly at home, and they're at home in this game, and that has been their kind of tricky... A location this season so I think this is a really big game for Leicester if they can win this it'll keep them well in the mix but it is also the sort of game where you feel like Bielsa will have learned a lot from the the reverse fixture um, and will have come up with some sort of approach to to try and nullify what Leicester do so um, yeah I think this will be uh, probably the most kind of interesting game of the weekend for me. Okay huge game at the bottom 
or perhaps not, and ultimately unlikely to change much, and I'm referring to West Brom's clash with Fulham. They're both in the bottom three at the moment. Mm. Here's a mighty stat for you. Duncan, you may know this, but we mentioned that West Brom have conceded loads of goals under Allardyce. It's 17 in just four home games under Big Sam. In fact, all of the last 21 goals scored at the Hawthorns have come courtesy of West Brom's opposition. Good Lord. That's the longest run of goals scored against a single team in uh, one stadium in Premier League history. And that includes Bilic's last match, um, which was a 5-1 defeat to Palace. Obviously, you add in that additional goal there, that's 22 goals. That's the worst run of um, conceding goals in home games in a row since the 1930s. So it really is kind of unprecedented defensive calamity for West Brom. I think it's quite interesting them playing Fulham in the sense that, you know, Scott Parker has shown... um, that he's learned this season. You know, Fulham had a terrible start. He's he's switched the system around. He's tried different players. He's tried different methods. And he's actually, you know, I think of, of the teams down there, Fulham um, look like they've got, they're the most adventurous. Um, and, you know, Allardyce would have would have ring-fenced this game as a, as a three points in his kind of recovery. Um, but at the moment, I can't really see it happening. Wow. Okay. Natalie, what have you got ringed in red on your weekend fixture list? Well, I think that there is uh, Southampton Aston Villa who will be interesting, even though it's on the same time as the Libertadores match. So ah. it's too bad for me, but it will be interesting because it's two teams who haven't been on on the best form. Just one win uh, in the past five matches. They're very close in the table. Aston Villa tenth, uh, Southampton is eleventh. So I think they're both trying to uh, find themselves again, find their their best form. And two teams that that play really well, that have individual talent. So it should be interesting if you're not watching Libertadores. Okay. (laughs) Or you can always do it on catch-up. They've lost their last four games against Saints, have Villa. Uh, Also this weekend, as we mentioned, Brighton against Spurs. That's late Sunday. A fixture which Brighton won 3-0 last season. But that would involve them actually getting a win at home, which hasn't happened yet so far this campaign. Ooh, Duncan. That was the game. Did it? I think it came just after the Bayern Munich match, um, when the Pochettino uh, era was kind of crashing around. It was the one where Lloris had that really horrible injury as well, and he kind of fell back on his on his arm. So and that was after like a minute or two. Um, was this also the game that the Michael and me like, where Aaron Connolly referenced Premier League years in the post-match <laughs> interview? I think you're right. I think it was. Yeah. Uh, and uh, here's a game that we're all looking forward to this weekend, Crystal Palace against Wolves. Mm. Give us a quick word, if you can, Natalie, about William Jose, the new uh, Brazilian uh, goalscorer for Wolves. Yeah, I think uh, Premier League can really help him develop. He had a, a pretty successful spell in Spain. I actually, he, he makes me feel kind of old because I remember when he started playing professional in Sao Paulo and I, I covered uh, his his beginning. And he, he was always seen as a prolific goal scorer. I don't think he developed uh, to the level that was expected, but I think Premier League football can, can bring this to him and of course it's it's very different to play for Real Sociedad he hasn't been playing a lot he's been on and off the team uh and now at Wolves I think he really can help them in the score sheet uh but he's 
tall, strong presence on on the area, really good at uh, headers. Uh, he's very serious, very professional. I'm, I'm hoping he, he will do well uh, under, under Nuno. How good a like-for-like like replacement is he for Raul Jimenez? I think they're different, definitely. Uh, they're, they're both good with the... the um, with the set pieces and and headers, but I think uh, William Jose, I think Raúl Jiménez has more mobility than 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 William Jose. They are different players, but I think he can add up to to a Wolf's attacking form definitely. Okay, well we may see him in action uh, this Saturday afternoon. Well, very shortly then we'll hear about the biggest game of the weekend. The Copa Libertadores final at the Maracanã. Let's get some odds, though, first from Lee Price from Paddy Power. Hello, listeners. It's been troubling me for a while, but I think I've finally worked out what's happened at Man United. The experts had written them off and predicted their downfall, only for their stock to go through an unexpected and, frankly, inflated rise. Yep, simply put, it's the work of the Reddit community once again sticking it to the man, Chester City. But the game has stopped... And United's loss to Sheffield United abruptly ended talk of their title challenge. They're now as long as 11-1 to to win the league, behind even Liverpool. Imagine that. Worse still, they're only just favourites to beat Arsenal. GameStop United are 7-5. The Wall Street Gunners are 7-4. Now, for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, let me explain. The second number is how much you bet. The first number is how much profit you stand to get if your bet wins. Uh, Sheffield United, for whom I haven't quite worked out a stock market equivalent, I don't know they've got a stock market in Saudi Arabia actually, are 20 to 1 to complete the Manchester double this week. I don't want to sell you short or short sell you, but I think that's enough number one from me. I'll leave you with this. It's 3 to 1 that Timo Werner scores the first goal of the Thomas Tuchel regime at Chelsea. Because narrative. Bye bye. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Woof. All right then, Michael. Saturday night, it is the Copa Libertadores final. Palmeiras against Santos at the Maracanã. Uh, Natalie, how big is this game? Oh, it's huge. Especially for Brazilians because it's two Brazilian teams who... Uh, who beat uh, two very uh, traditional Argentinian teams, especially on Libertadores, River Plate and, and Boca Juniors. And it's a very tight final. Palmeiras has a better group of players. Santos has more individualities. Both showed remarkable like fighting spirits, especially Santos. And there, there's a lot of interesting things about this, this final. Uh, the managers, because a few Brazilian teams started to change their strategies. They hired these low-profile managers that have different ideas and that's what Palmeiras did with Abel Ferreira he's a Portuguese manager and he completely turned the season around for for Palmeiras but Santos on the other hand they they have a very old school Brazilian manager experienced Cuca uh, and he also turned things around for Santos so it's it's pretty remarkable how they had different strategies different plans and they both worked out really well and of course not having uh fans on the stadium is always a thing this season but for libertadores it's it's especially hard to imagine uh, a libertadores final without uh any fans because 
Libertadores is known for the atmosphere. It's quite unique. It can be very hostile. You frequently see police officers inside the pitch protecting the players with shields when they are just taking corners so nothing hits them. And uh, so it will be weird. And you have uh, young players who may play in Europe very shortly, so it's worth it to, to keep an eye on Gabriel Menino. He's 20 years old. He's uh, He can play as a right-back or midfielder. He plays for Palmeiras, and he's already getting calls from the national team. There's Gabriel Veron. He's 18. He's an attacking player. And there are already rumors about Man City and Man United interested in him. Maybe it's too early because uh, his performances still vary a lot. And you have Caio Jorge from Santos. Uh, he's also 18. He's the top scorer for, for the team. So there's plenty to, to look at. Gabriel Menino, so Gabriel yes. Boy, uh, and, yes. and Gabriel Veron. Is, is he named after you know the, the last Veron that Man United bought? Juan Sebastian? Yes, I don't think so. Well, it's a possibility. Okay. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, we're around about that point, aren't we? Yes, yes, Interesting. That's true. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah, you, you mentioned the kind of fiery nature of these clashes and, and, and this being a, a, a state of San Paolo derby. Uh, River Boca, when they had their their, their, their derby clash in the Libertadores, it had to be played on a different continent, but this time around, no fans allowed at the Maracanã, which is a huge shame for uh, a billion reasons, of course. Which team should we root for Natalie could you just in brief one note on like who are Palmeiras and who are Santos Santos I know because of Pele yes uh well <laughs> is he playing is he playing this weekend <laughs> he'd be up for it <laughs> yeah <laughs> so as a Corinthians fan I would say you should support Santos because Palmeiras is our biggest rivalry okay but uh Palmeiras in, in terms of management they, they've been doing really well on organizing the club, on rethinking structures. And, and Santos has been a mess. So it depends on which you appreciate more. The uh, overcoming spirit of Santos against everything, against all this mess that, that was going on at the club, or Palmeiras who have been doing things well and, and got to the final in fair square, you know. Okay, Santos have actually won the Libertadores uh, three times in, in the yeah. past, two of those coming with Pele. Palmeiras won it more recently, though, in 1999. Here's yeah. a quiz question for you, Natalie yes. and everybody. Which club have, have appeared in seven Copa Libertadores finals, winning them all? Independiente. Is correct. Woof. Yeah, the biggest champions of Libertadores, Independiente, in a time in the 80s where they, they, there wasn't any anti-doping testing. So this was a big uh, factor in, in Libertadores, and especially Independiente. There were a lot of rumors regarding this. So they weren't so, so much Independiente as <laughs> Dependiente. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, then. Excellent. Well, I look forward to that. So that's, I think, around 8 o'clock-ish. Is it 8.15 or something on, uh, on, on Saturday evening? It's 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock, okay. Yeah. Very good. And loads of football coming up uh, on either side of that, which we'll be reviewing when we return in Monday morning's Totally Football Show. That wraps it up for, for today's edition. So many, many thanks to Natalie. Great to have you back uh, with us. Also, uh, Duncan Alexander and Michael Cox and you, listener. We'll catch up with you on the other side of the weekend. So have a great one for now from all of us here. It's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. 
keep up to date with everything totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletics Football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Hi, I'm James McNicholas and I'm here to tell you about the latest series from Beyond the Headline, the making of Big Sam. You see, Sam Allardyce seemingly can't quit English football and English football can't quit him. But why? Why does football keep coming back to Sam Allardyce? To answer those questions and more, you'll hear from Big Sam himself, those who have worked for him and those who've witnessed the full Big Sam experience. You can hear it all from February 1st and ad-free via the Athletic app. Just search for Beyond the Headline now. The Athletic.